This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on this week? Well, Danny, this week we are talking to one of my favorite governors in America, and I think yours as well, Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa, who has just enacted one of the most sweeping school choice laws in the country that is going to give every student in the state of Iowa a uh, education savings account with just over $7,000 a year that they can use if they choose to go to the school of their choice, to a private parochial or other school. They're not going to be trapped anymore in failing public schools. But she's also in the process found a way to actually increase the amount of money going to the public schools as well. So she's going to strengthen them as well. This is a model law that should be enacted in every state across the country. And she's going to tell us all about it. What she's talking about, I think, is so important. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why Governor Youngkin won in his race as well, which is that parents are sick and tired of being cut out of the business of their child's education. So here's the thing that we're dealing with when you think about all this wokeness, all this woke ideology is being pushed in schools. Our kids are in crisis like we've never seen as a result of the pandemic school closures. There was the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is known as the Nation's Report Card, came out a few months ago. And it found that the pandemic school closures wiped out two decades of progress in math and reading in our kids' schools. I mean, just think about that for a second. Two decades of progress completely wiped out. For the first time since the 1970s, nine-year-olds lost ground in math. Scores in reading fell by the largest margin in 30 years. So we've got kids in crisis in our schools, and the most damage has been done to kids in majority black and Hispanic school districts. Those schools were closed longer than white majority districts. They had reading losses and math losses and all these losses. And if you don't teach kids at an early age to read and write, the damage is irreparable because they can't do the work as they go up through the grades. One study found that for some of these kids, the black and Latino kids in these poor school districts, a 25% reduction in lifetime earnings. I mean, think about what that means for the American dream. This is the epitome of what discrimination is. Right. What what George W. Bush called the soft bigotry of low expectations. Right. Oh, well, we don't expect these kids to do any better. Oh, well, we don't expect these teachers to do any better. Right. And the answer is we expect the teachers to do better. We expect the schools to do better. And the people who they should be doing and working the hardest for are the people who are most in need. Well, here's the thing, Danny, is that all these people who are pushing these woke ideologies and CRT and all the rest of it, they claim to care about racial equity. If you care about racial equity and you are not focused like a laser beam on math and reading and making up for these learning losses, you're a liar. You don't care about equity. You care about grievance and teaching grievance. And these kids are going to end up making less money, falling behind their white peers. Racial equity, which you claim to want to advance, is actually going to be hindered. And then you've taught them to be, in addition, to blame everybody else for it because they're victims of a systemically racist society. Instead of teaching them victimhood, why don't you teach them to read and write and add and subtract? And maybe we should have summer school 
And maybe we should have year-round school. And maybe because, we should have school for longer hours. Exactly. And we should be, as a country, we should be completely focused on making up for these learning losses and getting it done now so these kids don't fall irretrievably behind. And if the public schools don't want to do it, if the teachers' unions don't want to do it, then parents should have the right and the ability to pull their kids out of the public school system and put them in schools where the teachers actually care about reading and writing and adding and subtracting. And that's what Governor Reynolds has done. She has empowered parents. Every parent in the state of Iowa will have that choice when her bill comes into full effect. So one of the things that I like the most about this in addition is that it facilitates competition. So it's right in the latter part of her interview. And Governor Reynolds says, now the bill is passed that facilitates school choice for all Iowans. All of a sudden, superintendents of public schools are coming to her and saying, hmm, well, you know, we got to work with this. And maybe we could use some of the extra money. And by the way, this means extra money for public schools in the system that they passed. Maybe we could use that extra money to hire more teachers or to pay our teachers more. You know, what's the subtext there? Maybe we could afford to have better teachers. And why do they want to compete harder? Because they don't want hundreds of students pouring out of each school into better schools. They would like to actually compete. This can foster the kind of competition that could actually revitalize our public schools, which are falling behind. And you know why they're able to come to the governor and ask for that and do that? It's because she passed collective bargaining reform, which allows them to pay for merit that disempowered the teachers' unions, which had a last-hired-first-fired policy and didn't allow you to promote only on seniority instead of promoting on merit and and promoting good teachers. They're actually able to invest in good teachers because she got rid of the collective bargaining process that hindered that and empowered the teachers' unions. So she's she's done three major things as governor on education that that I can think of, and there's probably more than this. First thing she did when she came off is got rid of collective bargaining reform, which is the most important education reform you can do. Then she passed a law requiring five days a week of school right in the fall of 2020 when kids came back during the year of the pandemic. So Iowa kids didn't fall behind. And now she's giving them school choice. So, you know, we talk about the states as a laboratory of democracy. This is a laboratory of education reform in Iowa. And I I think we're going to see amazing progress coming out of this state. And she's going to be recognized for it nationally. So with that flowery and flourishing introduction. And fully true. Absolutely (laughs) true. And you'll you'll all hear it yourselves. Governor Kim Reynolds, who's been our guest before, so she's a repeat offender here at at What the Hell. She's the 43rd governor of Iowa. She has the distinction of being the first woman elected to the state's highest office. Good for her. She has a longstanding record of public service. She was a Clark County treasurer before she was elected to the Iowa Senate. She was the uh, running mate and lieutenant governor to Terry Branstad. And here's our interview. Governor, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be with you, especially on a topic that's near and dear to my heart and I think near and dear to parents uh, all across the country. Yes, it is. Well, you know, we had you on almost two years to the day to talk about your law requiring that all parents have their kids in school for five days a week when a lot of people weren't doing that. So you've been ahead of the curve on education from the beginning. Tell us about this new law you've passed, this new school choice law and how it came about. Uh, well, I've been working on it, as you know, for three years, and I think the final product that I got across the finish line is the best by far. It's the fastest in the country, and it gets Iowa to universal parental choice in three years, and I believe model language for the rest of the country to follow, and I think we're going to see that happening. Happening. So I was really excited to kick it off, lead it off uh, this 
this year, 2023, and, and hopefully we'll see it happening across the state. But basically what it does is it allows approximately 7,600, which is the per pupil funding for both the individual for ESAs or to go to a private school and public school funding. As I said, we phase it off in over three years. So the first year, all uh, kindergartners uh, have the option, all, all uh, kids in K-12. And then I added something different this year that allows kids that are currently in a private school if they're based on the household income. So first year, if they're 300% of FPL, then they qualify to get the ESA. And second year, all of the same parameters for K-12 students, uh, but kids that are in private school that are at 400% of FPL, then they qualify. And by year three, it's universal across the board. I also... um, provided some flexibility for public schools. Uh, as I was trying to get this across the finish line, uh, we had a lot of, um, you know, I had a lot of support, but I was getting some pushback from rural lawmakers, even in my own party. So spent a lot of time sitting down with administrators across the state, really trying to understand what some of their concerns were and how we could help them be more competitive in the process. And so we found a way to provide some flexibility, not only in um, their requirements, we were too prescriptive, but to also provide some flexibility and salary so that they could be more competitive in paying our teachers that are doing all the hard work uh, in the classroom. So very excited about it. Uh, we like to say that we broke up one of the largest monopolies in the state by taking on the teachers union. And actually, this is the second time we've done it in six years because in 2017, we took on collective bargaining and we were able to break that up in the state. So two huge wins in a relatively short timeline that really, really, really drives uh, merit and gives parents a choice in their child's education. And one of the things that I understand is that you were getting some resistance from within your own party, and you got involved in primaries and yeah. made this a litmus test, and you campaigned on this as well and won by, I think, 20%. Uh, so you really got a mandate from the voters to do this, didn't you? I did, and I wanted to go back and be able to tell the legislature that because I, I, I was able to get it through the Senate two years in a row, um, and but only to be held up in the House. And one of the uh, individuals that was holding it up was the chair of the Education Committee, and they weren't allowing it to go to a vote because, as you know, we all make different decisions when we have to actually push yes or no. And it was kind of giving some of our legislators an out by not taking it to the floor for a vote. So I decided that I either help get this across the finish line or I do nothing and I continue to be an enabler and not get it done. And so I I ended up weighing in on in nine primaries uh, of my own party. But, you know, but the, the, the number one question that I asked them for the endorsement and help was, do you support um, school choice, parents having a choice in their child's education? And uh, if they did, then we were willing to work with them and help get them across the finish line. We were uh, successful in eight of the nine races. I'll tell you, the ninth guy met me the next day and wanted to work together, and we were actually able to get him to vote yes for the bill as well. But what I like to say to individuals when I'm talking about this is, while endorsements, I think, you know, maybe matter a little bit, more importantly, and this is what I was telling the legislators, parents want this. And I am seeing that across the state. And it was it was a it was a mandate for parental choice because not only did they win the primaries, they won by significant margins. I talked about it uh, everywhere I went uh, as I was campaigning all year, and as you indicated, I won by nearly twenty percentage points. So so school choice uh, was the winner in all of this, and 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 Mark because of that, because I felt like we really had a mandate 
uh, my second ask to leadership was I would like this to be the first bill that I sign uh, as governor this legislative cycle. Because, you know, uh, the opposition are who show up at these forums and town halls. And I knew we had a lot of newly elected legislators. And that can be just brutal with the fear mongering. So I knew it was important that we keep it narrow, keep it on topic, and really try to move it uh, through the legislative process as fast as we could. So let me ask you a little bit about some of the pushback, and then I want to really talk more about parents and kids. That's what Mark yep. and I really focused on, as both of us, as parents. Being parents uh, with kids. Right. <laughs> Being parents with kids, especially during COVID. So yeah. let's, let's get it all out there for people who are listening and who, who ask themselves, okay, but am I helping everybody. Is this going to cost more? I don't know a lot about Iowa state politics. Mark is going to laugh at me now because I said a lot. And in fact, I don't know anything about Iowa state politics. But I was reading the tweets of Matt Degner, who I Uh gather is a, a superintendent of schools. He's really pushed back against this and says that it's going to cost too much for the taxpayer. It is done at the expense of, for example, universalizing pre-K education, which some believe is, is a very important thing. What do you say to the Matt Degners of this world? Well, I think we're going to prove them wrong and we're going to dispel all of the fear-mongering because none of that was true. And I think that's why they fought so hard, especially you know, some of the superintendents and especially the teachers union, because they know that there's no data to support a lot of the, you know, fear mongering that they were, that they were throwing out there. You know, I signed three tax bills since I took office cutting taxes, you know, in, in five years, I've made it very clear that I want to continue to be able to cut taxes. But I said, in in doing that, I also want to be able to fund priorities that are important to Iowans and K-12 education is one of them. So we did a two-year, a five-year, we did all kinds of stress testing because we've been cutting taxes. We're seeing our revenue continue to grow. Uh, and, and through all of that, we were able to put new money in to fund the ESAs. And we're still only proposing to spend just about 82% of our available revenue because, again, I want to continue to help Iowans keep more of their hard-earned money. I want to continue to be competitive as a state so we can attract young families and people and businesses and retain those that are here. So so that is absolutely not true. I would say just the opposite, that it's not a zero-sum game. And I don't understand why the ability for parents to decide that best environment for their child to thrive and be the best that they can be should only be for uh, individuals and families who have the resources to have that decision. Uh, education is a great equalizer. Uh, I saw that through COVID. I think that really put a fine point on it for me. Um, as you know, one of the one of the first states to get the kids back in the classroom, we actually passed legislation to say parents get that choice 100% online or 100% in the classroom. I literally had Des Moines Public, one of the largest school districts in the state, sue me to keep their kids out of the classroom. Over 2,000 kids dropped out over that timeline. A majority of the kids in the Des Moines Public were Kids that were on free and reduced lunch, I want to say that dropped out, I want to say like 90-some percent, 70 percent were minorities. But yet, so those kids, you know, if you're on a free and reduced lunch, you probably don't have the financial resources to get that child in a classroom so that they can continue to get an education and be successful. But if you were a parent, which they did, and you wanted your child to play sports or to stay in the classroom, you were able to put your child in a different environment. And that is 
fundamentally wrong. And so not only can we afford it, we're doing it in a responsible manner. I ran tests. We ran test scenarios with a recession, without a recession, based on average growth that we've been basing our budgets on for years. We were able uh, to do it. So we didn't take any money away from public education. We were able to add, add, add new money to fund parents' uh, ability to have a choice. And, and again, it is not a zero-sum game. Um, we, we disproved the fact that, you know, more money into a system without systemic reform is the only way to, to improve education. And, you know, all they had, their only idea was more money, more money, more money. And it's 56% of our state budget right now, education. K-12 is 46. And so my, without anything else, without doing anything else. So my response back to them, what, what's the magic number? Is it 60%? Is it 65%? And still, we remain stagnant. Now, now we've elevated because everybody else dropped in the NAEP scores around the state because we kept kids open. But we are far from where we need to be. We need to up our game. And I believe that by giving parental choice, we elevate all of education. And we will see that. And we have seen that in states that are doing it. I want to drill down on that, but first let's talk about this whole idea that it's going to hurt public schools and reduce costs. So, you know, as the first governor to pass this was Doug Ducey in Arizona, and Katie Hobbs has just come in and, and is pushing to undo his universal school choice plan. And she was on Fox News Sunday this weekend with Shannon Bream, and one of the points that Shannon Bream pointed out was that uh, the Common Sense Institute put out a study which showed that actually the cost of the plan was $377 million, but it was going to save $500 million because the ESAs were only about 7000 but the state was paying, together with federal money, about 12000 per student. So, yes. you know, yes. how, does, is that also true in your state? Or is this going to actually save money and make more resources available for the public schools? Absolutely, it does, and it will continue. We were also, there's another piece of the bill that I didn't get to. First of all, I think it's unconscionable that she's trying to undo that. Just huge shout out to uh, Governor Ducey for all of his work and really helping to elevate education in Arizona. And, you know, he did it in eight years, you know, and I'm proud of the fact that we took all that knowledge and were able to do it in three. I mean, we've really boiled it down to what he's been working on forever and have a tremendous amount of respect for him. Uh, 7,600 goes with the students. So that's both public and private uh, BSA per pupil funding. But overall, it's about 17,000 per student that goes into K-12 funding. So that's federal, state, local, and then other miscellaneous funding that goes into school funding uh, for, for public schools. So out of that 17,000, it's only 7,600 that follows the student to the to the private school or the couple different areas that they can use that for. So there still is savings on that. The other piece of this, because of some categorical funding that we had, that schools will be able to take advantage of. If you're a public school that has a private school in your district, the kids that are in the private school, that public school will get $1,205 for every student in the private school, and that's new money that they never got before. Does that make sense? Okay. Absolutely. So that's new money coming in, and that student that's in the private school was never in the public school, but because they have a private school in that district, they'll have access to new funding. And because it's based on a per-pupil, the pot grows too. So, yes, it will ultimately be uh, will could potentially mean more money for our public public schools and and savings based on the total funding that actually goes per student into the classroom. So just understand this: so if somebody takes this ESA 
and leave let's, the public. Let's stop using acronyms, Mark. E- education already... savings account. Exactly. So if ever, someone oh. takes this education savings account and takes the seven thousand roughly that you that you've given them and leaves the public yep. school system and goes to a private or parochial or charter school yep. somewhere, yep. the yep. public schools retain the rest of the money that would have been spent on that child because they're taking out less than their full per student cost, and on top of that, they're getting a fifteen hundred dollar additional for every student that's in the private school. So they're actually yes. make, getting more money yes. by losing, yes. losing these kids. Yeah. Yes, they are. And, and, you know, so, and the other thing that they never want to talk about because it's so, it, it's such a, you know, they can't argue both sides. They're either wonderful schools and they can compete or we're going to just kill them with the private school because the funding's going with part of the funding's going with students. But even if you look back at Florida, uh, who's had some form of school choice since the 2000. Uh, and then you look, they're only about four, three, four, three to four percent of their student population to date that's made the choice to go to a private school. And in Arizona, I think it's about five percent now. You know, potentially that will grow, but it's not half for heaven's sakes. And I've said to the superintendents, too, if you have a hundred kids that are leaving the school, then maybe you need to do an internal review because something is wrong here. The parents are you know, taking their children and looking for a different environment to, to educate them in. And I just, you know, we've done a lot. We've done things with, you know, we said no to CRT. We said, you know, we've got some additional parental empowerment, transparency bills that are going through the legislature this year, which are all meaningful. But I think the one piece that will have the biggest impact is the Students First Act that we just passed, because ultimately, they do know dollars, and that's all they talk about. And as they start to see those dollars leave the school system, even though they're getting, you know, for the first year, they'll maybe be able to be maintained whole and additional funds, it is still going to have an impact on the overall educational system in the state of Iowa. One of the things that has interested me is the impact of school choice and of voucher systems on segregation in schools. You know, we spend an awful lot of time talking about how you know, schools and communities are being resegregated by woke ideas about who you should be with and who you shouldn't be with and who understands you and who has the right to talk about what. And one of the things that really interested me in one of the studies that I read about this is that, in fact, charter schools and school choice actually minimize segregation, that, in fact, they resegregate schools in really important and meaningful ways. I have two questions that I want to ask you, but that's the first one. Is this something that you're seeing as well? Yes, I think we will, especially we did. So we've done a lot. You know, it took us three years to get to the Students First Act and Universal uh, Parental Choice. But we, each year, we made a little bit of movement. So we uh, expanded open enrollment that really had a lot, that, that had a lot of kids trapped in failing schools. That allowed them movement, which addresses the issue that you just talked about, the charter schools. We're, you know, we just expanded the opportunities for charter schools to locate in the state of Iowa. We had the school boards that were making the decisions whether you could have one or not. Well, that shut them down right now. So now we have the Department of Education that will be, you know, the body that this, this signs off on additional charter schools. So we're, we're just starting to see more charter schools moving into the state of Iowa. We had two new ones this year and now with school um, choice, but I truly do think you'll start to see that be minimized where the existing system was actually driving that. One of the things that I really don't understand, I confess to you, yes, I know that teachers' unions have an enormous amount of power and influence in the Democratic Party. I understand why. I understand what they are. 
what I really don't get is that, you know, for people who can afford private school, for people who can afford to make the choices you described, that's great. So, you know, the upper echelons of, of Iowans or wherever people have this kind of choice, you know, they already have this effectively. You didn't need to do anything for them. But what I don't understand is that the Democratic Party has desperately tried to portray itself as the party of the downtrodden, the party of minority, the party of the poor. Now, you know, we can talk about the problems within the Democratic Party, but at the end of the day, the people who are benefiting from this disproportionately, not even disproportionately, hyper disproportionately, yes. are people in need, are minority communities, are the poor. Help me understand how this debate goes on and how there's any credibility to the arguments on the other side. Well, they don't, and they're losing it. And especially, I, I made that very argument to the media. I mean, they attack me all the time. I don't care about those less fortunate. I don't care about minor. I mean, the whole list that you just laid out. And I finally just looked at them and said, are you kidding me? This is the one thing that absolutely can address it, you know, that does more for these kids than anything else that we can do for them is to just to be able to have access to a quality education, to be the best that they can be. Um, it's, it's, you know, and, 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 and really they had no response to that whatsoever. And, and, and again, you didn't hear any of that in the arguments. If you go back and listen to the floor debate, all they, well, I mean, you know, they didn't think there was accountability. They thought we were picking and choosing and, and none of that is true. These are accredited private schools. They have a whole list of accreditation that they have to follow in order to be able to be eligible for the um, educational savings accounts. But mostly all you ever heard was money. I mean, that was what they talked about over and over and over. They really don't have a valid argument when it comes to trying to understand why um, the minority, the poor, the, these individuals that will benefit the most from having uh, parental choice. There, there, there is no argument to that. To add on to Danny's point, I mean, the statistics show that across the country that majority black and Hispanic schools stayed closed longer than white majority districts across the country, and that the learning losses for minority majority schools were far worse than they were in white majority schools. So the pandemic closures did far more irreparable damage to poorer and minority kids across the country. And so if you're a affluent white parent whose school is not teaching, you can just pick up and go somewhere else. But if you're dependent... But if, you, if you're dependent on the public school system because you don't have resources, then you're stuck. So this whole yes. thing is regressive. Yes, yes, it is regressive. And I saw it, and we saw it during COVID. I mean, we have data. There's data nationally. Uh, we saw test scores plummet in reading and math, and especially to your point, uh, in our minority communities. It's just unconscionable what they did. It was unconscionable what they did in the Des Moines Public. I mean, just boo need to keep the kids out of school. And now when you hear Randy Weingarten talk about it, it was like it never happened. They completely deny the fact that they were, um, I mean, I was getting uh, uh, obituaries from educators in the Des Moines public, you know, because I was going to have them get back into school, you know, to be able to educate the kids. But it's unconscionable. Um, and now the way that they want to talk about it is the fact that it never happened. But in some of these kids, Mark will never recover. I mean, you know, I mean, that's just horrible to say. But, you know, they've gone to the streets and they're a part of a gang and we've lost them. So it's just it's just 
unconscionable. And this is the quickest way we can turn it around. So you had mentioned the NAEP scores earlier when you were talking. And, you know, the NAEP scores nationally, we lost two decades of educational progress yep. during the school closures. Yep. But you you actually passed legislation requiring schools to open in the start of the next school year. Tell us how that worked in Iowa, whether it was a success and what you saw in your NAEP scores. Well, we saw ours go up, but I mean, we basically stayed the same, but all of the other states that were above us dropped because we were able to keep our kids uh, in the classroom. You know, we had the majority of our school districts that really had already made that decision to do it in a safe and responsible manner. But we had a lot of our larger school districts that just were fighting it and just, you know, continue to close down. And as I said, even after we passed legislation, they we had two or three of the school districts sue us to keep the facilities uh, closed. And so I met with parents. I met with kids. We did virtual roundtables. The stories were gut-wrenching. I mean, I had parents tell me, uh, we feel like we're failing at everything. I'm, I'm not a good mom. I'm not a good wife. I'm trying to be an employee. I'm trying to work from home. I would have students, you know, just they, they said they're just giving us busy work. They're not helping prepare me for college, for post-secondary education. You know, they wanted to be back in school. Uh, their senior year was rest. I mean, the, the mental uh, piece of it, you know, we, we were do, dealing a lot with the aftermath of COVID and, and keeping these kids out of school. And so just even trying to, you know, address some of those issues that were really put on them, again, with the fear mongering and the closing down and um, keeping them out of school, we saw, you know, that's a safe place for kids to be educated. That's a lot of times where they get a hot meal. Uh, and, and, and all of that was taken away from families that didn't have the resources to move their child up and move their, move their child to a school uh, district that, that remained open. We kind of, one of the things that we were able to utilize when we were making the argument, even with the CDC through all of that too, is we actually kind of did a test run because we got the kids back into sports the summer of 2020. Uh, we had girls playing and boys playing baseball and softball. And we were able to start and finish with about 96% of the um, teams that started finished. And again, we were able to prove that we could do this in a safe and a responsible manner. And so with some kind of some data that we were able to point to, it wasn't impacting the kids. We were able to you know, allow them to have a normal summer. And I had parents reach out to me and say, oh my gosh, I feel like I've got my child back for the first time. He's just been, you know, just a different child uh, having the ability to get together with other students and play a sport and just bring some normalcy uh, back to their back to their lives. And so we, we continued to build on that when we came back to school. And I, that was the first bill I think I signed that next year too was to, give parents. Now, if you wanted your child to do, uh, to remain a hundred percent online, you had an option to do that. But we also said that if you're a parent that wants your child in the classroom, a hundred percent of the time, you also get to make that choice. Not me, not the government, but the parent will decide what, again, kind of what environment is the best for their child. And especially kids that had, had special needs or learning disabilities. I mean, there's just no way that you can do that remotely. And we, we saw parents that had kids with special needs just to watch them just go backwards uh, and lose all of progress um, that they had made to just, just gut wrenching uh, stories. 
from, from parents and kids about how this was playing out in their life. It was a national disgrace. It really was. It was, yes. It really was. It was, and and there will never be accountability for it. There will never be. No, no, because now they act like it didn't happen. I mean, I just, oh. It's incredible. It really is. I want to ask you a question that you you spoke at AEI last week, and I want to ask you a question about the DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion plans. It's, I guess, our understanding. Maxie Eden asked you about this at our event. Our understanding that the Biden administration is going to try to put in place new Title IX regulations that are intended to tie the hands of learning institutions around the country, according to federal regulations. You can guess what Mark and I think about these sorts of things, but how, how are you going to handle this? How are you going to handle mandates about who uses what bathroom, how kids are treated, and all of it? Well, we're going to push back just like we have from the beginning. So I finally, after 40 years, I have a Republican attorney general that I can work with and push back against this administration and the overreach and the insanity that is coming out of this this administration. Uh, we've got a parental empowerment and transparency bill that, I mean, can you imagine that in today's environment, I have to put into statute that parents are the ultimate decision makers of their children, but this is where we're at and this is what we have to do, uh, that transparency is required and that means uh, curriculum, books, contractors, consultants, uh, anything that a student is subject to. Uh, We are going to set boundaries to protect children from woke indoctrination and gender identity and sexual activity. So it'll mimic a little bit of what you've seen coming out of Florida. We changed a little bit of the language. Uh, We have K through third, but we're probably looking to move that to sixth grade um, at least, I think probably. So we'll expand that out uh, just a little bit. But parents just want their children to go to school and get a quality education in core subjects. And they want the rest left up to the parents to have a discussion with their children. And it has just been turned on its head. And I tell you, the more and more that parents see what is happening and what is taking place and just the ability of like the federal government to come in to their lives and dictate Uh, what their children uh, are exposed to and and who they're exposed to and all of that, you're going to continue to see school boards overturned. You're going to continue to see races impacted. So we're going to continue to push back just like we have. We're going to continue to pass legislation that puts us in a good place. And then it'll be decided in the courts and, you know, at some point, but we're going to, we're going to be on the front line pushing back on all of this. Well, it's so important that you are, but the ultimate solution to this is school choice. Because exactly, because <laughs> if, if you're a parent and your kid is being taught these ra- these radical, you know, gender and race ideologies, and you, you have if you're stuck in the public schools, you got to go to the school board, you got to fight, you got to you got to campaign and try and unseat your school board member and all the rest of it. If you have choice, if you're affluent, you just say to help with this, I'm going to pull my kid and put him in a yeah. Catholic school where they're not being taught this. Uh, but right. but only affluent well, parents can do that unless they're school choice. So you've you're empowering parents to just not. I mean, it's great. We have to fight back because we have to protect the public schools. But parents should just have the right to say, you know what, you're not you don't get to choose if my kid is reading these books. You don't get to choose which bathroom my kid goes to. I'll go to a school that's going to teach them the way I want to be taught. Right, right. Well, that's what I said earlier when I said that. I mean, ultimately, this is the key piece of legislation that does that. I said, you know, we passed CRT. We said girls 
uh, you know, we'll play girl sports, boys will play boy sports. We said, so we've done all of that. But like, like I said earlier, what they do understand is money. And so when parents do say that, Mark, and they are, and they will, and we're already seeing it with open enrollment, at some point, they're just going to have to decide. Uh, and, and that's why this is so important. And that's why I believe you're going to see school choice, education, you're going to see a revolution across this country. And I'm proud to be leading it. I'm so proud to kick it off. We got it done in, in two weeks, three weeks, I don't know, relatively quickly, especially when you think of government. But Sarah Sanders has a very similar bill. Governor Stitt is looking at it. We've got uh, Greg Abbott is looking at it. I sent language down there. You know Ron's going to get it done in Florida. So, I mean, that's that's all we were talking about. I just got back from from RGA, and let me tell you, uh, this is this was the number one topic of uh, the balloon and, you know, China and a few things, a few other things. But 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 when it comes to our future and the next generation, this this is a this is a game changer, and uh, it will we will dispel all of the fear mongering and all the stuff that they've thrown out there. We're going to see education overall be elevated, and most importantly, our kids are going to be the winners in this, and our parents. So it is of everything that we can do, have done, will do. This will have the biggest impact, and I have no doubt about that whatsoever. But you still have to fight the other battles. I mean, you just can't. You just have to still continue to fight on that, on that front as well. But this is the one that will have an impact. I've already had a super, a couple superintendents meet with me in Iowa. They said we didn't like this, uh, don't agree with it. But you know, I figured you're either at the table or you're on the table. You, I like what you did with the Chapter 12 flexibility. I like that you gave me the flexibility to pay our teachers a little bit more and be competitive. Um, so I was pretty preoccupied with trying to take down the Student First Act. Now that it's through, can we circle back and look at some of the other, you know, flexibilities that we could maybe work with? So I'm kind of already starting to see, you know, a little bit of that recognition that, ooh, we're going to have to do things different. Because he, he did say, he goes, I want to be the destination of choice. And I'm like, isn't that the kind of culture that we want? happening in in k-12 education and higher ed believe it the, the people of iowa are so lucky to have you and i'll tell you you mentioned the chinese balloon we're gonna have to have you come back on the show one of these days and give us your foreign policy views because i think at some point in the not too distant future the american people are going to want to know what you think about foreign policy uh, yeah well i do i'm right away in i'm telling you unbelievable what is wrong with this country oh, oh. Thank you. As always, it's a pleasure to speak to you and kudos for your good work as parents and as citizens. We really think highly of it. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to sit down with you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. We'll see you soon. Take care. Bye. I was joking a little bit there about foreign policy, but you know what? She would be a great pick for vice president uh, for any Republican running uh, running now. And I think that she's uh, she's got a big future nationally because I, I think this country, one of the things we learned in the 22 midterms, look who did well, reform-minded, forward-thinking governors. Who weren't obsessed with the media narrative in the New York Times and you know CNN about the 2020 elections, about what Donald exactly. Trump says or thinks about anything. She you know doesn't care. Yep. And good for her. One thing that kept striking me when we were, were talking was, what if the shoe were on the other foot? What if schools were not doing well, not teaching your kids, 
presiding over a decline in education. But on top of that, they were teaching your kids about how great it is for Americans to use guns every day, how people who are not Christians are godless, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, stuff that stuff stuff that you certainly hear as a perspective from certain parts of our country. But what would parents say if their if their kids were being taught that? They would say, "Get my kid the hell out of school. I want him to go here or I want him to go there." And the liberal establishment would applaud it. Right? How dare schools try to teach you values? Just to sort of put it in context, when you and I grew up, we would stand up and you know, give the Pledge of Allegiance every single day. We'd put our little hands on our little hearts and stand in front of the flag and say, what's that? What's the lovely uh, line about for, for Richard Stans? <laughs> what? <laughs> kids, kids who didn't know the words of the, uh, uh, of the Pledge of Allegiance in one of the... <laughs> One of the lines was for Richard Stans, you know, <laughs> the famous Richard Stans. Of course, of the, well, of the American I mean, Revolution, famous, exactly. Famous part of American history, but yeah. I mean, that's gone from schools now. And why do you think it's gone? It's because people wanted it gone. The answer is right. Parents should have the right to actually have some say in what their kids get taught. And by the way, you didn't see this clamor from parents about what their kids were getting taught when they were doing reading, writing, and arithmetic. But here's the thing, Danny. So the reason why the left is able to push these radical ideologies is because there is no choice. Because this is the this is the model this is the model of the left. The left is all about empowering a small elite to make decisions for people, as opposed to empowering individuals to make decisions for themselves. That's the difference between the right and the left. Fundamentally, there's a lot of other differences, but that's the fundamental difference. You're gonna have an electric car and you're not gonna have a gas stove, and that's the end of it. Whereas we look and say, if you wanna have an electric car, be my guest. Knock yourself out. If you want to run out of energy halfway through your drive across country, be my guest. If you want to spend half an hour at a charging station, go ahead. You know, we don't care what your choices are. You make your, you do you, we'll do us, right? Well, the ba- the best of us, the best of us don't care. And there are people on the right now who have decided that the methodology of the left shouldn't be the methodology of the right. And we've talked about right. that on the podcast. Yes. But fundamentally, that's the difference between the left and the right. And so that's why they hate school choice is because they want to tell our kids, this is what you are going to learn. This is what you are going to believe. You are going to believe these radical ideologies. You're going to be taught this. Parents don't have a say. And the whole point of school choice is disempowering these elites who are trying to impose an ideology and put parents back in charge of their education. And I want to come back to foreign policy because we're both foreign policy wonks. This is not just an education imperative. It's a national security imperative. And here's why. We just had Mike Gallagher on the podcast. And one of the points he was making, we've just seen these balloons coming out from China. I think we've shot down our fourth one in eight days uh, as we as we record this. By the time this comes out, there might be more. You know, China is literally flooding our zone, and we didn't even know it was happening. And I'm not going to get into a digression on the balloon. We're going to come back to the balloons in a future podcast. But they're waging a cold war against us. And one of the points that Mike made was that part of their strategy to destroy our system and to elevate socialism with Chinese characteristics is to instill self-loathing in us, right? Who are you to talk about our systemic oppression of the Uyghurs when you're a systemically racist country? Who are you to question our suppression of China? Who are you to lecture us about democracy when you live in a systemically racist country where minorities are oppressed and your country was founded on to perpetuate slavery? And so we saw that ridiculous Disney Plus but you know literally that could have been written by the Chinese Ministry of Propaganda 
They couldn't have done it better. If they would come up with their own little cartoon to talk about why America has no right to lecture us on the Uyghurs, that's it right there. And so this is not just a education imperative. It's a national security imperative because they want to teach us to hate ourselves. We're not, as Mike says, they want us to believe we're not the good guys. And this isn't a battle between good and evil. We're, and, you, and if it is a battle between good and evil, guess what? You're not the good guys. And to the extent that kids in America are being taught that we're not the good guys, we're aiding and abetting the enemy in this new Cold War. Well, those are fine words on which to end. I couldn't agree with you more, as I'm sure everybody is well aware. So, <laughs> <laughs> thanks. For, you're, thank, you're getting so much smarter, Danny. You I agree know, with me all it's the time. Amazing, it's awesome. It? It's, you're, I'm you're, just you're, agreeing with you're Mark You're a slow so learner, but more. you're getting there. Let's just say I restrained myself a couple of times on this podcast. (laughs) Thanks for being with us, as always. Don't hesitate to send us suggestions, comments. Subscribe to our podcast, please. Share it with your friends and relatives and your enemies especially. Don't forget to subscribe to our Substack. And thanks for being here with us. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 